This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Victoria Riskin to the program. Thank you for joining us, Victoria. Well, thank you for inviting me. Victoria Riskin is a psychotherapist and also a movie and television producer. And Victoria Riskin has a book out now called Fay Ray and Robert Riskin, a Hollywood memoir. It's about her parents. The 1933 movie King Kong elevated Fay Ray to the top of the Empire State Building and movie Immortality. But she also starred in more than 120 pictures opposite uh, the leading men of her time. Let me ask you about the origins, uh, if you will, of your mother and father, starting with uh, Fay Ray. Where did your mother come from? My mother was born in... uh on a little ranch in Alberta, Canada, outside of a town that no one's ever heard of called Cardston, which is still there, but very tiny. Mm-hmm. Her father ran a, a logging mill um, and built, uh, homesteaded there. But when my mother was three years old, she and the family, well, the family was just too cold for them to feel they could survive, and they moved first to Arizona, which was certainly warm enough, and then ultimately her father got work in a little mining town in, um, in called Lark, Utah. It was a copper mining town, and it was a pretty rough-and-tumble place, and that's where she spent her sort of what I call seminal developmental years from about age 5 to about age 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. How did she get to Hollywood? Well, it's an improbable story. Um, she was, uh, the family, the father had left, and the mother took the six children to Salt Lake City. They were living there. It was a very uh, tough time because they had little money coming into the household. And uh, it was also a period when there was the great 1918 flu epidemic, and the whole family got sick. Her older sister died. It was a tough time. And so... There was a young man that uh, was in his early 20s. He was a photographer. He had traveled through Europe. He had studied art in New York. And my mother's sister brought him home uh, as a kind of boyfriend uh, uh, or friend who, who she rather liked. And the whole little household was very electrified by this young man because he was so well educated and interesting. And my mother had uh, won a little contest uh, selling newspapers in which the prize was being filmed. Uh, She had a little moment on film, and it was just very exciting to her. And this young man said, well, I'm going to Hollywood to get work as a photographer, and I'll take Faye with me. So my mother at age 14 gets on a train with this young man, and they head west to Hollywood. And her mother uh, said, felt that was okay. You know, she, I think she, my mother said she really thought that what relieved her mother was that there was one less mouth to feed because they really had Mm -hmm. very little food coming in. I mean, my mother used to talk about having bread soup, which was two meals a day of a bowl of milk and then a piece of bread just to, just to give a little comfort to the tummy. Um, Was Faye Ray her real name? 
Uh, yes, it was Bina Fay Ray. Oh. Uh, she so it was a, her middle name, but they always called her Fay because her mother's name was also Vina. And she was doing movie work once we get into the 1920s, right? She was doing movie work. Uh, it took uh, maybe a few months, almost a year, before she got a little part in a silent film uh, when this photographer brought her to town. And then from that, she got another little part. And then pretty soon, um, her mother showed up, and uh, but she was still determined to, to get more work in the movies. And she went herself to Hal Roach Studios, where they were making these two real silent comedies with a guy named Charlie Chase, who was a sort of Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin kind of comedian. And she went to the head of production and said, I'd like to work here, and he gave her a six-month contract. Mm. So pretty soon, uh, she was the primary breadwinner for the family, and she was barely 16. Mm, When that was... And... She was younger than your father, but get to the end of the story, I suppose, or an important part. Your father did die as a, as a relatively young man. And but let me ask you about your father, Academy Award-winning screenwriter Robert Riskin. Uh, where did he come from? So my father was on the other end of the country. He was born on the Lower East Side of New York City. His parents had uh, come to the United States in the uh, early 1890s, uh, escaping uh, Europe and the pogroms. They lived in um, they lived in they lived and grew up in in Belarus, and uh, they they were determined to get to America. So um, they had one child before they came, and then <coughs> some other children, including my father. And then pretty soon, as they had a little bit of money, they moved to to Brooklyn. They moved around a bit before they landed in Brooklyn, but my father's uh, growing up years were primarily spent uh, in Brooklyn. Mm. And he uh, first, uh, I don't know, uh, found success on the Broadway stage as a, as a playwright, right? He did. Well, first he was... Uh, he, before he came, found success on Broadway, he went to, uh, he, he was working in the garment business as sort of an office boy. And his uh, bosses sent him down to Florida where they had invested in these little comedies. And my father told them, these are pretty lousy comedies. And they said, all right, well, you go down there, see if you can do a better job. And he did for, for two years he made these uh, wonderful little comedies. I've seen the few of them that still exist. I think he made over a hundred of them. Hmm. And uh, and but then um, at the World War One, he he knew he better sign sign up um, because uh, the the draft was coming, and if you just got drafted, you got sent anywhere. So he joined the Navy and came back to New York, where he was stationed. Soon as the war ended, he went with his brother to try to make some more of these little movies, and they shifted. That didn't go so well. They shifted to producing plays. There were lots of theaters that were popping up all over New York City. There were like 250 little theaters. 
So it wasn't hard to produce something if you could uh, scrape together the money. And they had found some plays that had been done in England and not in the United States. And they they mounted these plays and they pretended like they were also the uh, publicity operation, you know, at the Riskin Brothers announced the newest play from London and so on. And and they did pretty well, uh, but pretty soon my father wanted to be a writer. That was really his his heart was with creating and writing the stories, and he started to write write plays uh, for Broadway. Mm. And I think you're right that um, once the movies became talkies, they needed words, they needed writers. And, and in, to some extent, that's what attracted him to, to go out to California? Yeah, well, it was it was partly it was partly that, but it was really financial necessity because in 1929 there was the huge stock market crash, and all of these theaters in New York just closed up. They just couldn't survive. So he was suddenly he had a rather flush bank account. He had invested himself in the stock market, and pretty soon he was walking the streets without any money in his pockets. Hmm. So he. Um, he, he he was trying to find work in Hollywood. That's where writers, whether they were playwrights or they were novelists or they were journalists, everybody was trying to get to Hollywood because that's the only place there was work for people who were mm-hmm. writing. And so that's what he that's what he did. Now it didn't happen right away, but uh, but what happened was there was an agent who contacted him and said, "We want to buy one of your plays." And he said, well, that's great. And he said he was going to ask them for a fortune of money. And they were nobody. And he didn't have any money, so he was taking a big risk. And he he bargained uh, with them uh, pretty tough and got a handsome sum. So overnight he was very wealthy when he finally closed the deal. And hmm. uh, he came out to Hollywood. They, they needed to have the rights to the play because they were already halfway through filming it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a, a film with a wonderful little film with Barbara Stanwyck. Victoria Riskin joins us, uh, author of Fay Ray and Robert Riskin, a Hollywood memoir. They uh, were her parents. Uh, when they met Fay Ray and, and Robert Riskin, they both were kind of like fully formed, right? I mean, they'd in fact, uh, Fay Ray had been married before. That's right. She had had a. Uh, a a 10-year marriage that finally dissolved. She'd had a two-year relationship with a wonderful playwright named Clifford Odets. She had made already, I don't know, dozens of movies, uh, probably close to 40, 50 movies. Full, she had a full career. Uh, but she wanted uh, the kind of love and intimacy that had been missing in these prior relationships. And my father too, had had, I mean, he'd won an Academy Award. He'd made uh, several films that were nominated for Academy Awards. He was on the, he was the top, one of the top screenwriters in Hollywood and also doing some producing and directing. He was hugely successful, but he too uh, had not found that sort of other (laughs) Mm -hmm. that he was looking for. But they found each other. And they found each other. It was a great romance. It was a great love. It it probably came, it was probably intensified by the fact that they finally got together 
right after Pearl Harbor and Hitler had declared war in America. And I say that it maybe intensified it because I think everybody was in some ways frightened by what was going on and worried about the state of the world and uh, find, finding you, you, you sort of, your defenses are a little bit more down when you're feeling vulnerable like that. And I think they just have held on to each other, both physically and spiritually, emotionally, and found great, great, uh, great love uh, uh, as soon as they they finally got together. It took a, it took a while, and that's part of the story, the journey of how mm-hmm. they find each other. We're talking with Victoria Riskin about her book, a Hollywood memoir about her parents, Faye Ray and Robert Riskin. Back in just a moment. Uh, Bob Cutmore here. want to remind you about our GoFundMe campaign, which keeps the Historian's podcast in operation. Uh, go to uh, this website, GoFundMe.com forward slash 2019 The Historians, and you can make your donation online. If you'd rather not uh, donate online, you can uh, write out a check to me, Bob Cutmore, and send it to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Historian's podcast guest is Victoria Riskin, author of Fay Ray and Robert Riskin, a Hollywood memoir. I never kind of followed up, well, and well, one thing for each side, from your mother and your father, I never really have followed up about King Kong. Um, the movie King Kong came out in, I believe, 1933, and the man associated with it uh, was Marion Cooper. He he was actually a uh, an explorer. He was an amazing character, and if you see the film, you you recognize that some of it. The film is quasi autobiographical because he was a passionate adventurer. Uh, he, he he had been a fighter pilot early on and um, had been shot down in an airplane and held captive when his plane went into uh, caught on fire. He had to navigate it uh, and steer it with his elbows and his knees, and he landed it safely and then was imprisoned for a year. And then he went back and helped form the Polish Air Force to fight the the Russians. He's a big hero in in Russia. And then after that, he became passionate about making documentaries in remote parts of the world. And his motto was, make it distant, difficult, and dangerous, Hmm. which he did. Uh, And he brought back these uh, extravagant, wonderful documentaries about uh, a nomadic tribe in Persia, 50,000 people who moved from over the mountains and looking for grass in wintertime for their herds, and then another that he did in Thailand with elephant stampedes. And he brought these back to New York, and they were a big hit because people were fascinated about these mysterious parts of the world. And ultimately, uh, then he came back, came to Hollywood, and began to do films that partly shot uh, say in Africa and partly on the on mm-hmm. the, uh, studio lot, and then uh, that gradually turned to uh, his making King Kong at RKO, 
And he made another film concurrently with King Khan that Faye starred in, my mother starred in, called The Most Dangerous Game. And by the time they finished King Kong, um, they opened it at Radio City Music Hall in New York and also at the same night at the Roxy. 9,000 people came at that one night, and overnight they saved the RKO studio from That's bankruptcy. Him. He was a very, and that's just half of his yeah. life. No, <laughs> the rest they, of his life is just as interesting. <laughs> that iconic scene of with King Kong and your mother on the Empire State Building, how was that done? I gather there was like a, was it a kind of technical breakthrough to be able to do that? The technology, people look at the film today and probably kids say, no big deal. They're used to seeing all of these things that you can do with commu- computer technology. But with King Kong, they were inventing and developing a more sophisticated kind of technology called stop-motion photography. So you have a little doll, that's King Kong, 18 inches high, handmade, uh, and every time that Kong moves, they they move uh, the doll incrementally to make the movement of the doll. They shoot it, then they, they take a picture of it, then they move it again, mm-hmm. and take another picture of it, and that gets assembled as action with all these uh, grafted-together little shots. Um, And then they match that to a giant hand, uh, and my mother in the uh, grip or the giant arm with a hand, and she's been cinched into it, and they have to match all those, the arm, this big arm, shrink it down and match it to the 18-inch doll and make it and blow it up. I mean, just very complicated technology. So, um, uh, and they use uh, green screen, which is commonly used today, but they invented all of that for this film. And that's why it's sort of a technical, was a technological breakthrough. Now, here's something from your father's side, or maybe switching over to your father's side. Um, He won an Oscar, and you've mentioned this for... Uh, it happened one night in 1934, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. It was a movie directed by Frank Capra, and your father did a lot of writing for director Frank Capra, but they seem to have had a falling out, did they? Well, first I would say that he didn't write for Frank Capra. He wrote, and Harry Cohen loved my father's writing. He ran the studio, his studio chief, and he matched him with uh, Frank Capra. In other words, uh, some of the, the the scripts that my father did, he had done before, you know, Capra was assigned to make the films. But Capra was a great, he was, I, I look at the films today and he has extraordinary um, visual style and he's a, he's a fine director. I don't think they had any kind of real falling out. People say that. But I think it's been mischaracterized. I think they went their own ways, uh, and it was they loved each other, and they were a great team in many ways. But I think Capra always liked to be in the limelight, and that got to be a little, maybe a little tiring. And and um, they they actually formed a company together in 1939 to make Meet John Doe, a really mm-hmm. interesting film. So, so, and then the war came, and so they were separated, each doing different things during the war. And then 
after the war, they did not come back together. And I think that was the time when my father felt, you know, I really want to be on my own, and Capra wanted to be on his own. But they stayed friends, friendly. I I think the falling out that people talk about is really that Frank kind of uh, just disappeared at the time that my father got ill. Right, when when your father got ill. In fact, I don't know if I read it in yours or somewhere else, but apparently he never visited your father and and other like Hollywood celebrities did because your father was hospitalized for a long time. That's right. There were many people who came on a regular basis, some almost, you know, every other day. There were friends who were wonderfully supportive. Frank never came, and no one could figure it out. They just couldn't. He didn't come to his funeral. He, um, I I really struggled in the book to try to figure out why would two men who were good friends and stayed friendly... Um, I remember, you know, as a child going to Capra's house at the beach and so on. There, there was a friendship there. Why didn't he ever come and uh, or even call? And he didn't. And it's a, it's bewildering in many ways. And yet I think there was something, I don't know, maybe a little lacking in courage. <laughs> I, I don't know if it was... Yep. Um, I think he he was afraid to come and and the emotions that he might have felt and so he stayed away at first and then he stayed away so long you know he stayed away once you stay away then when do you come and then how do you apologize that you haven't been there I mean I just think it became a complicated thing for him at the same time Frank Capra's career was on the descent so he was probably not in a very good place mm-hmm. he he always felt confused about you know who who deserved the credit for their films or for any film he he wanted to be a writer he was frustrated with uh, not being able to write himself the reasons are no i mean i'm doing sure. my psychoanalysis here and that's probably not fair but 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 i always think there are reasons even if we don't understand them um, well, here's a comes something in a way completely different that intrigued me about your book, the back of the book, where you have quotes from people. You have a quote from Kirk Douglas. Now, Kirk Douglas came from my hometown, and I do local history, so I write about him a lot. Uh, In that town is Amsterdam, New York. And I never really thought of it this way, but Kirk comes to Hollywood like when um, your father and mother are established people and he says of your book i was always curious about life in hollywood before i came here i found out in this fascinating book and then i I maybe overthought this i looked into it a little more deeply that uh your father was an uncredited collaborator on an early kirk movie the strange loves of martha ivers i I just thought it was uh interesting you know that uh kirk douglas you know, looks to your book as a source of what was in Hollywood. Well, I think so. I think he loved reading about the 1930s. When did Kirk come to Hollywood? Probably I would say it was right after the war, because I think right after the war, Martha yeah. Ivers was 46. His big breakthrough mm-hmm. was in 49 with Champion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, right. So, so I think he felt everybody in the whole country was fascinated with Hollywood in the 1930s. They all looked to Hollywood for a sense of what was glamorous and interesting and creative, and, and Kirk 
was you know an actor in I guess working on Broadway, right? Wasn't yes, he was he? in Broadway yeah. first. Yeah. So I think he had a he had. I was surprised. Well, frankly, I gave him the book. And I thought, oh, he's not going to really read it. You know, Kirk is in his nineties. Right, he's not. Well, now he's almost. Uh, now no, he's, he's over a hundred. Yeah, <laughs> he's over a hundred. Well, yeah. when I gave him the book, it was in a manuscript form. He not only read it carefully, he said, "Here's." He gave me a couple of, you know, suggestions that were excellent. He's in. A, he's a, a remarkable. He's a remarkable man. Yeah. Um, so. Well, let me get, get you back to uh, your parents. Um, your father, we talked about him being hospitalized. In 1950, he had a stroke. I, I looked at your date of birth, which is the same as mine, or not the exact day, but the year. I mean, did you, what did you remember of your father because, or before the stroke, or did you have strong memories? I had very vivid memories of him before the stroke. Not so much numerous, uh, you know, me- memories, but but very strong feelings. Uh, and I think because he had that stroke, I really, uh, even at uh, the age of six, seven, and eight, I clung to those early memories of him because he was a, a marvelous person to be around. He was warm. He was funny, uh, in a, in a, not in a goofy way. He was funny with a kind of wit and charm, and he was... Uh, he loved his kids. He, he he loved to stimulate our imaginations, but also he loved the way we came up with stuff, you know. And mm-hmm. he was so um, th- those little moments that I spent with him. I just I would put it was like taking your favorite food and putting it in putting it aside so you can savor it. You know, mm-hmm. I just savored those memories for years. And then, and then it was those memories were so different than uh, my sense of him before he died, but after he'd had mm. the stroke and he he had some paralysis and he had trouble with his memory. I mean, he was still a very sweet person, but he just that life life force in him had just mm-hmm. kind of gone out. I mean, he was just kind of struggling. And we're running uh, close to the end of our podcast, but uh, mm-hmm. your your mother, meanwhile, continued working. I mean, when, when your husband, I'm sorry, when your father was healthy after he had the stroke, uh, yes. and then she was a widow, I want to say, when she was in her late 40s, wouldn't that be? Right. Yeah. Right. And eventually, yes. but not like right away, she married a, a doctor in 19... 19- mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 71, but she lived to age 97, 2004 is she when she did. passed. Well, she almost made her 97th birthday, so I give her credit for the 97th. Okay. <laughs> was 96, you know, a month before uh, her 97th birthday. Yes, she was a, a resilient spirit, and <clears throat> I don't say that things were always easy for her, and I try to capture the both sides of her character many sides of her character in the book her her sparkle her resilience the times that were difficult how she coped um i i remember this uh, when she went back to work in television there was a story about her and our family in one of those television magazines and the headline was a woman of of courage a mother and, and a working woman of courage and really um that's how I I look at it through the lens now of writing the book, 
the saga of this woman who comes from a dusty little mining town knows great success and difficulties with a difficult husband finds great love with my father and then loses him and then has to raise her children alone and go back to work. So if you, like Kirk Douglas, want to know about Hollywood in a certain era, uh, do get get a copy of Fay Ray and Robert Riskin, a Hollywood memoir uh, by their daughter, Victoria Riskin. Uh, Victoria Riskin, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for taking the time, Bob, to have a conversation today. It's lovely. Victoria Riskin is author of Fay Ray and Robert Riskin, a Hollywood memoir. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.